Welcome to the Executive Sessions interview series from Information Security Media Group. I'm Matthew Schwartz, ISMG's Managing Editor for Europe. And today I'm speaking with Brandon Spikes, CEO and CTO of web security firm Spikes Security, which he founded in 2012. Brandon, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Certainly, Matt. Where did the idea for running air-gapped browsers in a Spikes data center come from? Nice, yeah. I love uh, speaking of the genesis of this because it happened to be back when I I was working at SpaceX for about 16 years, by the way. I worked as the IT right hand for Elon Musk at all of his startups. And at SpaceX, it was kind of a unique opportunity because I was there so early and we really spared no expense on cybersecurity. It really allowed a greenfield opportunity to build something pretty amazing and also made it possible to see the need for what we've built. Essentially, there was this impossible scenario in the mid-2000 and late 2008, maybe 2009 kind of time frame that we had rocket scientists creating sensitive IP that we needed to protect right there on their own laptops and computers. They're kind of entitled and couldn't really be corralled or be constrained on accessing the web. And, you know, simultaneously, the activities of going on the web with browsers was introducing lots of security threats. Out of necessity, we created this idea of making a web browser or or a way to browse the web that was kind of immune from all those threats, those drive-by-clicks and all that malware online. So does the idea for doing this come straight from SpaceX? Is this something that you were doing or attempting to do while at SpaceX? Yeah, actually, we tried extensively to do that at SpaceX and ended up discovering that there was really no viable commercial offering or way to do it. And that's really why when I struck out on my own to become an entrepreneur, I was able to do something that really hadn't been done before. And it's pretty exciting. I would say that probably for maybe two years or so at SpaceX, myself and the security team aggressively looked for ways to do this that had acceptable levels of user experience. Because often with security and convenience, you're at odds there. And if I were to provide a solution to a man like Elon that was cumbersome to use, he would not agree to use it. Moreover, if it had any sort of big problems or or crashed like all of the open tabs that you're using, the user community would be at my desk with torches and pitchforks really quickly. So it had to be super stable and high performing in order to really fit the bill. What's interesting to me about your having to work with a user population filled with rocket scientists is I think they've always been an interesting case in that anyone I've ever spoken to who works for an academic institution or a research institution says we're there to support the scientists. They're going to do what they want to do. And that's that's always been quite different historically from corporate security, where they would say, no, you will be using IE6. You will not be using any plugins. But that has changed with the whole BYOD movement. So I think there's some interesting parallels here between what you're trying to do and the rise of this self-entitled, if you will, user population that isn't going to say, we don't want locked down tools anymore. We want to use what we need to use. Yeah, Matt, that's very perceptive. I hadn't actually made that connection between the, the scientist and the BYOD before, but I actually agree with that. How have customers been responding to this? Is this something where you signed up a lot of people to date? Is this still an early phase? Do you continue to refine it? Or have you reached a stage now where you think it's ready for mass adoption? In terms of its Stage, you know, we're sort of controlling the flow, if you will, to sort of allow the company to grow at the proper pace. We have just enough customer growth to allow for lighthouse accounts and case studies and stuff, but not to outpace our hiring capabilities, right? So I'd say for 2016, we're really controlling the growth intentionally. But the reception of the product, I think, has been pretty awesome. There's been numerous use cases and industries that find it useful. So that's been sort of cool and also a challenge at the same time to sort of figure out where to focus. So we were in 
beta release last year. So this year we're in sort of our full production release and now adding functionality and features and trying to blur that line between the uh, performance and the convenience and the security as much as possible to make it not perceivable. Tell me, if you will, about controlling the growth. I've never launched my own startup, but with some startups, I think there would be a rush to get as big as possible quickly. Where does this restraint or this perceptiveness that you've got about how quickly you think you need to be growing come from? What's your check and balance there? Yeah, I mean, I think that initially the cost of a customer is quite high. And so you really want to make sure that you're getting the value out of that. And by value, I mean that the marketing efforts or getting case studies out of it or that the engineering team is getting lessons out of it that they need to learn. And so, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense in the beginning to control the growth a bit. Also, customer support is no easy task. Our culture here is to provide a white glove level of support for all customers. And to make that scale is also kind of a challenge. And so I think what happens is that this year, all of this stuff gets more efficient. And that's what allows us to grow a lot more quickly. And that growth is targeted at business and corporate customers. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. We are starting with enterprises and specifically very security conscious enterprises were our initial customers, of course. All of our customers today are companies and enterprises. For anyone who hasn't used your product yet, from a technological perspective, what kind of experience do they have from a user experience standpoint? And then what's going on behind the scenes to make that happen? If I'm a corporate user using your product, it looks like a web browser, correct? That's correct. So we present it as close to the original web browser experience as possible. And this is what I meant, I think, when I said I was trying to blur the lines because underlying technology is completely different. So you're not using actually a web browser at all. And therein lies the big security gains is that we've taken the browser off of your computer. But how do I make that experience to the end user seem like a browser and make it so that it's fast and that it's convenient and all of this? That's really where our secret sauce lies, right? We make this technology almost kind of call it ethereal. I want it to not be perceived by the user but, you know, have it be doing incredible magic stuff in the background to keep them safe online. And so from a user experience standpoint, perceptually speaking, obviously you've got a certain benchmark you've got to hit in terms of how fast the system can respond. So I'm assuming that you can do that, you know, whatever that millisecond threshold is, you can react quickly enough to make this as seamless as it would be on somewhat modern device, right? Absolutely. And it's not any one thing. It's actually a combination of many things that make the experience fast and easy to use. You know, it goes from just user experience to things like you mentioned, like the sort of latency and then the effect that this technology has on the endpoint is usually a pretty dramatic increase in performance. So there's like lots of things that come into play on this. And at the end of the day, what we're doing speeds up the experience, speeds up the endpoints, the computers that you're using it on. And, you know, it generally loads pages faster than before. And it is a big win, both in performance and in security. I would think that one of the speed improvements would be when you've got 60 tabs open, they're not open on your computer anymore, right? As a user. Precisely. And, you know, that makes a huge difference for most computers that folks have in standard corporate America. So it's SpaceX, I'd say, is the exception. As the IT chief there, I bear no expense on technology for these rocket scientists that everybody had incredibly fast computers. But I think that's not the norm. You know, most folks are running around with old laptops that if you open up 
a dozen tabs in a browser, pretty soon you can't really do anything else. And then just to geek out for a second, from a technological perspective, what's happening on the back end? Are you using a WebKit-based browser on your systems that's helping this browsing experience happen? The general idea behind isolation is that the browser process, which is the risky thing to do, is actually running ideally even off your network or outside your firewall. And it's running in a purpose-built Linux appliance that's hardened and using virtualization to create the most immense amount of security around that browser process and then is designed with the assumption that bad things can and will happen to that process since I think it's pretty common knowledge that browsers get hacked all the time and WebKit is known to have lots of vulnerabilities. So we sort of construct these defenses around it. But then the most sort of fundamental gain in security is when the communication between that island of isolation and the endpoint is not HTTP anymore. So we're not actually transmitting web content and scripts and plugins to the endpoints. We're actually transmitting a much more benign format of information that's similar or in some cases exactly like JPEGs and compressed audio streams where there's really very little capability for that content to contain malware. What about from a cloud security standpoint? If I have a business and I'm using Spike Security to isolate my browser, then Spike Security, say, for example, might be interfacing with my Salesforce.com instance. Is that a question that you've gotten from customers? Namely, can we trust you to be the organization that is talking to Salesforce on our behalf, even if we're not going direct anymore? That's true. I think there's a cultural preference, if you will, that many companies have about cloud services. I mean, Spike Security is no less trustworthy than Salesforce, but I think some corporations are very privacy and security minded and really avoid doing much online, right, or using cloud services much for that very reason. And so because of that, and actually a lot of that sort of mentality exists at SpaceX, and so because of that, I actually have enabled both on-premise deployments of our technology as well as cloud-hosted deployments of the technology. So it sort of works in both cases. And then I'd say the last thing is that when you're accessing cloud services like Salesforce or something that might have a lot of intellectual property, we've built a really elegant mechanism for electing when not to use our isolation technology. So say, for example, your corporation or your business really trusts these particular online services. Maybe there isn't a whole lot to gain from isolating that content. And so to the user, really, the experience is it doesn't impact their day-to-day routines, whether or not you're isolating it or not. And because we made it so elegant, it's sort of something that just goes unnoticed by the end user. But the business gains incredibly by implementing the isolation on the rest of the web, right, where all the real danger lies. Switching gears a little bit, From a managerial perspective, or perhaps an entrepreneurial perspective, what is the biggest challenge or some of the biggest challenges that you faced as CEO and CTO of Spikes, and how have you responded to those? That's an easy one. It's called fundraising. It's incredibly challenging. Frankly, I was really surprised by, you know, I thought, oh, gee, I came from Elon's companies. I should have the red carpet. And and (laughs) really, I didn't. The VC community is a real tough bunch. And I love them dearly. I mean, I think a lot of the VCs that I've met are incredible. Just incredible experience, very smart people that really know what's going on. And I learned a tremendous amount in the process of working with these folks. But yeah, that challenge was probably the biggest, which is surprising to me because what we're doing with our product is incredibly challenging. Initially, I thought building the product was going to be the big challenge I'd face, but it turned out to be fundraising. It's a forcing function for building a really excellent, mature business. 
really understanding your business model and all of the sort of underpinnings that make it scale and successful. So that was an immense challenge and I responded to it by incredible efforts and it took a little longer than I expected but in the end of the day my response was to party you know I felt so great when we finally closed the fundraising I threw an incredible party and really breathed a sigh of relief because not only did we achieve something nearly impossible it seemed but now I'm able to focus on the business and back on the product again and so that continues to be pretty exciting and a really fun day job. You have got a really interesting pedigree. You were the fourth hire at Space Exploration Technologies, or SpaceX, founded by Elon Musk, which is attempting to revolutionize space travel. Pretty cool stuff. What would you say while you were at SpaceX as the CIO, what were some of the lessons you learned that you're now applying to Spikes? I suppose it was that just because it's difficult doesn't mean it isn't worth doing. That's sort of the number one thing, because that's really drove a lot of the employees at SpaceX to rise to the challenge. And and the occasion was that what they were doing was they weren't just building socks in a sock factory. I think that's the number one thing is do something that's worth doing and take on the challenge, even if it's really difficult. I think maybe secondary lessons, hiring and growth. I learned that a great deal. At SpaceX was sort of my first opportunity to be part of the management team. And so that I think was incredibly valuable as well, sort of learning what the boss might expect from his management team. Elon set incredible expectations and really knew where to put the bar to force people to rise to the occasion. And that, I think, was a really valuable lesson as well. So I guess those are about the top of the list. Beyond SpaceX, speaking of household names, you were a very early employee and the IT director at PayPal, which managed the twin feats of not just being an early digital wallet e-commerce mover, but still being around, albeit owned by eBay. How did your PayPal experience inform what you're doing at Spikes? I learned a lot there too. PayPal was my first IPO. So that was kind of an interesting to see that happen and what it did to the corporate culture and what it meant to people. And I think that was pretty interesting. They also grew extremely fast. So here's what building a company from zero to IPO in three years looks like. And then this sort of PayPal mafia, if you will. I think there's a lot to be learned by seeing your friends all go off and start companies. It's like, wow, okay. I think that really broadened my horizons. Peer pressure. Yeah, completely peer pressure. Well, where are you thinking that you're going to take spikes from here? The future goals really to get this technology out there. And I mean beyond the enterprise and then into the consumer world someday. And so to do that, we have to figure out what I call hyperscale. It's necessary that the technology can scale efficiently to ever possibly reach a consumer market. And making the whole experience completely ethereal, meaning that it's high performance and convenient and ubiquitous, but also sort of invisible. And so those are the big challenges that I think would allow us to sort of achieve that long-term goal. But it's going to take a while. We're going to stay pretty laser-focused for the next, you know, at least year or two, building a real marquee enterprise brand before you see any movement into consumer. In fact, even possibly through enterprises would we reach the consumer. But really, I think that it's kind of necessary to get security on the web in the hands of everybody. And do you see any parallels with your near-term or long-term future with this sort of technology like we had with the internet in the late 90s where you had the emergence of these content delivery networks that started being utilized by companies like eBay, I'm guessing PayPal, Amazon, that put enough servers around the world in enough locations that if you were a bigger player, you could be somewhat guaranteed that any person who might be your customer would have a more seamless experience. Yeah, I think 
it is somewhat similar, but content delivery networks operated in the background completely. Whereas until isolation security becomes ubiquitous, there's going to be a period of time where it's necessary to really know when you're using it and when you're not. Essentially, you have to know when you're secure and when you're not. So that's really how it differs from the content distribution networks. Brandon, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, you're welcome, Matt. Anytime. For ISMG, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for joining us.